Do you Mr. Know President, Democratic Congresswomen are not American. Somebody has a problem with our country. If somebody doesn't want to be in our country, they should leave. That's Mr. President, House Speaker, are those Congresswomen not American? Rather than hide behind sham and whitewash investigations, when will the Prime Minister finally apologise for his derogatory and racist remarks? Welcome to The Know-How, a podcast aimed at bringing academics and professionals together to dissect the pressing matters of today. I'm Dr. Glenda Cooper. And I'm Dr. Lindsay Blumel. This is a special episode of The Know-How, featuring a debate on political correctness held at City University of London and presented by Dr. Mark Honigsbaum. There's been much talk in recent weeks about the dangers of politically incorrect speech. Whether it's Donald Trump telling four American congresswomen to go back to the countries from which they came, or Boris Johnson's description of burqa wearers as letterboxes, some politicians appear to be more interested in inflaming public feeling than in moderating their language. But what's wrong with political correctness? And isn't there a risk that by fanning the flames of division and hatred, ugly words will provoke even uglier acts of violence? I'm Dr. Mark Honigsbaum, and in this special edition of The Know-How, we're bringing you the highlights of a recent debate on political correctness and the so-called free speech crisis, hosted by the Department of Journalism. Making the case for politicians to moderate their language was Yasmin Alibaya Brown, a self-described Muslim woman of colour and the author of In Defence of Political Correctness and Refusing the Veil. Opposing her were the conservative thinker and Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens and Andrew Doyle, a comedian and prominent free speech activist. In a standing room only auditorium packed with students and members of the public, Alibaya Brown was adamant that words could cause real hurt. It was a lie, she argued, that only sticks and stones broke bones. But while her opponents shared her appeal for greater civility in public discourse, Hitchens and Doyle were equally adamant that political correctness was increasingly being used to censor free speech and, in some cases, jail people. The result was a vigorous and, at times, heated debate that veered into issues such as Trump's alleged responsibility for the El Paso shooting and whether Johnson's language on Brexit was fueling trolls and threats against Remain-supporting MPs. In the process, we debated media effects theory and the speakers shared their own experiences of hate speech. Through it all, I'm glad to say, there was no call or need to remove anyone's microphone. On the contrary, the debate proved that, despite concerns about no platforming on some university campuses, free speech is very much alive and well at City. I value freedom hugely because I got to it quite late in life. And I completely accept that more freedom to express yourself and, and speak makes absolutely better societies. It is a right. Where I differ from a lot of people is that I don't think it is an absolute right. That very, really fake debates have been had over this. Everyone has a line. Everyone has a line. The only argument is, where the line is drawn and who draws it. So that's my position. How it started was interesting. I mean, I edit these books called Provocations. And um, I commissioned Claire Fox to write a book on, on her view of freedom. And I then realized that actually there was a lot in her book that I needed to argue with. 
So mine is a response to her book. So I then looked back at where it all started, and it actually isn't just about language. It's never only been about language. It started in the 60s, in the heady civil rights um, uh, you know, time in the US, when the first black students, very few of them, entered the Ivy League universities mm -hmm. and very quickly felt completely out of place because this, the, the, the curriculum wasn't addressing their histories, their literature, none of it. And so it started in Stamford, actually, in a student newspaper. These black students saying, it's great to be here, but can we actually expand the curriculum? So actually the argument was about curriculum, and that was very interesting. And, and then it sort of developed, and the, the, almost immediately there was a fight back from uh, largely uh, uh, right, uh, the right funded by some very rich people. That's all in the books, so I won't go into it. And, event, and that so it developed in, in America. It was about feminism, it was about anti-racism, it was about power, about access, about defining knowledge, and, and so on. But what did politically correct mean back then in the 80s? It meant exactly, no, it was a shorthand for mm. the white-owned male world. Mm. That fortress had to be, mm. I suppose, mm. you know, broken into. Mm. That was what it was about. Two very unlikely opponents, because they were on opposite sides, if you like, of the, of the political spectrum. And Leslie on one side, mm. and Simon Hoggart on the other, started up a panic, saying political correctness is destroying America, and it is on its way here, and it's going to destroy, you know, wreck everything as we know it. And of course, that is partly true. Political correctness sets to wreck everything as it has been for a very long time. But it's not a plot. It's not a communist uh, uprising. None of those things. I think it was time. So Me Too came out of PC. Anti-racism came out of PC. The way we, as you said, a lot of language. You know, when Theresa May, I can't remember who it was in Parliament, mm. who used a terrible metaphor mm. when he, on, on the, on, from her own party mm. about what they wanted to do to her. Actually, the right wing said, this is unacceptable. So almost stealthily, there has been a change in an awareness, even among people who would never, ever, ever call themselves PC. My favorite line in the book is by, is by Shakespeare, who, did, who knew about everything. And in Coriolanus, the soldier Coriolanus, at, at one point said, where I have taken the blows, I have run from words. Mm. So when people say words or words don't hurt, we can just debate everything. Let's just debate everything. No, we can't debate everything, actually. There are some things we should be very careful about because there is such a thing as society, actually. That note, so one of the, the lines that uh, I, I struck me in your book is you say that political correctness at best is sensitivity to the feelings and needs of others, a noble Christian doctrine. Um, Peter, do you disagree with that? I completely agree with it. I think the, the, the reason why political correctness has been so successful is because a large part of it is simply good manners. Uh, the, the ways in which people in this country, not, I have to say, in my own 
home and during my upbringing or in the schools that I attended, but in general, the ways in which people referred to each other and to certain <coughs> groups, which we could simply call minorities to save time and trouble, uh, was atrocious and ill-mannered and unpleasant and rude. And I think anybody of any sense is glad to see all that gone. And if that was all that political correctness was, then everybody could, uh, I think, give it a round of applause and say, let's have some more of it. But it is, in fact, something much more complicated and much more dangerous, in my view. And if you, if you read, everybody thinks they've read, but very few people actually have read George Orwell's 1984. But those who have read it know that the, the, one of the key parts of it is the, the invention of the new language, Newspeak, which is designed to make it impossible to say things, and by making it impossible to say them, making it impossible to think them, and therefore to narrow uh, discourse to the point where only what is approved can be said or thought. And political correctness has many of the aspects of Newspeak in, in the way that it simply makes certain things impossible. It also it, it, it equates certain things which are not the same. So, for instance, anybody of any sense uh, understands that racial bigotry and, uh, and attacking people on the basis of the color of their skin or their ethnic origin is barbaric, stupid, uh, ill-mannered, moronic, and wasteful, and there is no defense of it in any form whatsoever. When you go into other arguments, for instance, about, uh, a, a, about the sexual revolution uh, or about the differences between men and women, it isn't quite so straightforward. People increasingly do not say things in public which they think because they are afraid it will endanger their jobs. And if they do say them, then they do lose their jobs, and there are many, many cases of it. And so it, 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 this seems to me to be a description of a society which is not free. If you forbid uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen or some other fascist to speak, then you strengthen them. If you invite them to speak, as I once saw down at the Cambridge Union, you can watch them being demolished because what they say is rubbish. But if you silence them, you strengthen them, and it's, it's, it's madness to do so. So a, a free society is a healthier society, and a society in which bad ideas can be defeated and crushed. So I, it's not a simple yes, no. Uh, there are virtues to political correctness, but there is, there is, a, there is a much greater virtue to freedom of speech. Andrew. Yes. Um, so I know that, so you, you've read Yasmin's book, I know, and um, I, you, you wrote a, quite a long article in Spike. Um, can you tell me what it is you t take issue with in, in her thesis? Because I, uh, I think you feel that there's a difference between political correctness and what we have now. Yeah, I, I, I disagreed with Yasmin's book politely. I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I don't know if you read it, it wasn't mean, I was just politely disagreeing. Um, my, the issue I take is I think we need to draw a distinction between the politically correct movement that Yasmin identifies in her book of the 80s and the 90s and what we are seeing now, which I would see as more of a kind of creeping authoritarianism. I don't think that we're living through a free speech crisis. I know I'm often accused of saying that, but I don't think that's the case. What I think we're seeing is kind of fissures, these slight sort of breaks in, 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 our, uh, in our civilization in terms of our, our right to free expression. So we could call the 80s, 90s political correctness movement, I'd like to call it sort of the Winterville era. You know, you have this, that's a very famous story where, where uh, the Daily Mail claimed that Christmas was being renamed. You can't call it Christmas anymore. Alive. Now we have to call Alive. it Winterville. And it was, and it, I it totally alive? agree. It was a total lie to the extent that the Daily Mail had to, story. Yeah, they had to retract it. It wasn't true. Uh, it was designed just to stir up a, a, a problem. Similarly, you had the Daily Express claiming that uh, nurseries were banning Barbar black sheep because of uh, racial concerns and changing it to Barbar rainbow sheep. That was actually a, a front cover story for the Express. That also wasn't true. There was an, a nursery had decided to teach the children about the colours of the rainbow by modifying the song lyrics. Seems like a good idea to me. Nevertheless, these sort of things get whipped up. And then you get this idea of the PC Gone Mad Brigade 
Uh, that, and the problem that I see is that those same arguments, the arguments that a lot of the arguments that Yasmin uses against, though that kind of alarmism, that kind of reactionary tabloid nature, is being used now to silence legitimate criticisms of uh, the erosion of free speech, which, which happens today. I, I think they're outdated arguments. I think what we're dealing with now is something very different. And I'll give you some examples. Every year in this country, over 3,000 people are arrested by police for things they have said online, on the grounds of being offensive. That's about five times more than, than Russia does. Um, we have people who are, have served prison time for jokes that they've posted online. Um, and this is a big shift. Marcus Meekin, otherwise known as Count Dankler, uh, is prosecuted in a court in the UK for uh, offen grossly offensive hate speech for making a video in which he t teaches his girlfriend's pug dog to do a Nazi salute. <laughs> when this happened, uh, very few comedians stood up for him. In fact, a lot of comedians sided <laughs> with the court and said he deserves this. So there has been a cultural shift, okay? So, we, so we, we don't live in a society where we necessarily do have the right to mock whoever we want. And I think that's very uh, disturbing. And I, I think you're well within your right to say, I hate the joke he made, I find it offensive, I find it cruel, I don't find it funny. But there is a distinction for me between that and then, the poli and then police involvement. Because as soon as you've got police involved, there's this myth that I, I keep hearing, you know, you just want speech without consequences. I know literally nobody who says that. Everyone who believes in free speech wants more consequence. They want, if the consequence is more speech, more debate, more argument. If the consequence is uh, the police knocking on your door or you're being arrested, that's not free speech at all. So I think we're, we are in completely different worlds now. It was absolutely right that, you know, this, uh, teaching your dog to do the Nazi salute created great unease in this country. And I'm really pleased something was done about it. I don't think the police should come knocking on doors all the time, but when people like me or other women or women of colour get the kind of verbal abuse we get every hour of every day, you have no idea how that affects your sense of safety, security or confidence. You have no idea how terrifying that can be. It's relentless. Is that just me? No, no, I'm, yeah, I'm saying to you. I so have to quite say, no, to say that, <laughs> these things don't do, we can, we can just live with it, it's actually unfair. But like, yes, I'm not sure what that has to do with the point. I, well, the I, point I think everybody sitting here, I doubt there's anybody in this room who doesn't loathe the idea But you were of, saying of, the right doesn't of... loathe the idea of, 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 of your being abused. In, in, not in me, but everybody any, knows what anybody. I'm talking about. Okay, well, but but, but what not, the other thing is that... Not, the we're, not, we're, not, we're not talking about street abuse. Street abuse has never been Not street by, abuse. By I'm talking about word abuse, emails and online. But I think and, the point is a lot of... A lot of the sort of things that used to occur on the street have now gone online. Okay, mm. we have to recognise the role that technology has played in changing. And words destabilise you. Everyone has a line. Everyone has a line. And the dishonesty in this debate is that we don't talk about the lines. We talk about these people are free and these are the censors. It's not the way it is. I, th I agree, though, that everyone has a line. I completely agree with that. I feel that the line has to be decided by the individual conscience. That's the difference. I think that that's the only way it can be done because it cannot be objectively applied. I agree with you that being offensive for its own sake is something I, I don't do. I don't, I don't like that. But that's my decision to make. I, I think if someone else decides that they're going to, say, tell a joke which is going to offend a lot of people, that's their decision. They've examined their conscience. They've made that decision. And then we can respond in kind, either by <coughs> counter-ridicule, arguing against. And that's how free speech works. Good, it's a good system. Want the public space to be civilised. I'm looking at all of you. You're looking at me. I might think of a 
hundred horrible things about some of the people in this room. You might think, silly old bag, what a stupid woman she is. We do not say it. We think it, but we do not say it because this is a shared space. And that shared space used to be more civil. And I do agree with some of the distinctions you've made between the, uh, until the mid-90s and what's going on now. And that civilized space is becoming less civil. And we all lose when that's the case. It's not about imprisonment with police. It's about just being a little bit more aware that we share a space. You do have to have ferocious sometimes, and, and, and indeed rude discourse. Look at the cartoons in our newspapers, not least the ones that Yasmin works for. They're, they're often extremely, viciously, personally unpleasant to politicians. It's what helps keep us peaceful. We have to have it. And if we don't have it, we, 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 we will lose something very important. Be careful that you don't suppress, the, that you don't shut the safety valve, because we all know what happens if the safety valve gets That would mean that there are no democracies in the world that have survived centuries, because they've not been as rude and as unkind as people are in your parliament. If, you know, and there are rules even in parliament. There are rules there are of rules language. Yeah. There are absolute rules even in this parliament. This idea that there, you can just go around being vicious and, and you know, just ask the women MPs in our parliament how that feels. Do not be sensitive to that. It seems appalling to me. But I, okay, so I, th I think this question of, of, of language in parliament has been very prominent at the moment because, of course, all the criticism leveled at Boris Johnson over his use of the term surrender bill. For instance, now some people uh, are hum and humbug, and humbug, which is a very violent suite. Um, I, th I think. Surely we should say H. He was. I think it's very important, and this goes to the point you you two are making, and you, you're quite and you're both in a completely different period. We have social media now. The words okay. travel much faster, and they can, can incite I, people to real violence. Okay, can, I, can I make a upset. point about that? I think a lot of the war that I'm seeing on idioms and metaphor at the moment, which is what it is. I mean, there was who was the Tory MP who tweeted out about how if EU boats come into our fishing area, they should have the fate of the Belgrano. And then the Independent ran a headline saying uh, Tory MP calls for the bombing of boats. And I think, don't you? Haven't you done a basic? You know, don't you understand metaphor? This is not, it's not real. He isn't literally doing that. Um, I'm sure Jess Phillips, who is very angry about the phrase surrender bill, doesn't actually want to stab Corbyn in the front, as she said she did. You know, we, we speak in idioms and metaphors all the time. We don't literally, and none of us are stupid enough not to know the difference. And also, well, so you say none of us, but some people don't recognise the difference, and that does motivate interaction. No, I don't agree with that. Some people get You don't agree that the man who stood the MP was motivated by the toxic language he imbibed. I couldn't possibly say who, but none of us could say who motivated him, right? Can I just address this point, though? Because Jess Phillips said in Parliament that she received a death threat in which Boris Johnson Boris Johnson had been quoted in the death threat. And that is not proof of causality. That is not proof that the man who said the death threat was incited by Boris Johnson. It's just proof that he is capable of quotation. That's all of that does. Okay? We do not know. You just don't get it, do you? You do not understand. You do not understand that this rough and dreadful atmosphere that is fairly recent in this country, Peter and I have argued over many years. We come from different political ends. We have, you know, we argue, but we are civil. Mm -hmm. The uncivility of our society is something we should all be worried about. And I find it extraordinary that you're sitting here saying there's no causality, there's no, and Jess Phillips shouldn't have said what she said about 
uh, I, I COVID agree. either. For goodness sake, we are, we are trying to live together. I think, I think we can argue, we can satirize, we can laugh at each other, you can even push it. But there are some things that you should think about. It's not just left-wing people who get threats. Uh, and in some cases, the, the, the threats are actually made real. Uh, so I think we should be careful about imagining there's just suddenly, suddenly been something new, uh, which has is, which is recently developed, or that there's never before been any violence in politics, or that it's only ever directed in one way. Because it, it, isn't, it isn't true. Uh, we're all against it, I hope, and yet there were people, uh, and some of them are now, I think, quite prominent in the Labour Party, who were far from unhappy the night that the IRA blew up. Uh, Margaret Thatcher and put Norman Tellett's wife in a wheelchair for the rest of her life and killed a number of other people. There was some exulting about it going on. So let's just be fair about this. There have been people on both sides who have behaved very badly and there's no monopoly in this. It's not actually about freedom of speech. That's about human civility, human kindness, pity, generosity to opponents, willingness not to speak in such a way uh, that you actually seek to destroy your opponent and turn him or her into an enemy. And that is the point where we all have to stop. That is, that's, that's a simple moral rule. It's actually not to do with freedom of speech. You do not treat your opponent as an enemy. You do not wish to destroy him or her physically. Once you do that, you become a barbarian, and it's the end of, of, of civil society and freedom and democracy and everything we value. But that's a different issue from the freedom of speech. If you think there should be these limits, who do you think should enforce them? Well, actually, and social how, values and, do and it, don't they? And how should they? Social values do it. <laughs> we all That's have why values. there are some words that have gone out, have become, have passed into the past, thank God. And when you say very nice things about people shouldn't be racist, there was a time, even in my lifetime, when people thought they had the right to call me a wog and, a, 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 and all of those names. They don't do that anymore. So. Social values change society. Yeah, you've changed society. I, I don't think we're disagreeing, though. I, I would say that we're, what we're saying is we should all, as a collective, talk about civility and, and push for civility. Yeah. But at the same time, at the same time, we cannot enforce those who do not wish to subscribe to our view of what civility means. I grew up in Saudi Arabia, which is you, you can't say that's not repressive. I have never said that. Do, do you have uh, a question? Do you have a question, though? I suppose just that I I think you're bearing into. You say you're not promoting censorship, but I think that's exactly what you're doing. How? By disagreeing, disagreeing with Peter? Not by disagreeing. But by saying that some... Because words are just words, that's all. No, no, no. And they're, not they're not just words. They're not just words. They're not just words. They're not just words. Words have power. Wait, wait, can I have the one second? How many people here think that words can't hurt you, that words are just words? What? How many think words can be weaponized and hurt people? Well, you're in the minority. Well, no, I'm not going to be a minority. The first two questions and I'll leave you this. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, you can frame the question. Should we do it again? How many people here think words can't hurt you? How many people here think words can hurt you? Are you happy now? <laughs> okay, uh, this gentleman at the back, please. Before you go on, I think the question was put to Yasna. And it's still being put, and she's still, in my view, not answering. She thinks there should be restrictions on what people, what people say. She will not say uh, what they are, or who should enforce them, or how the people who enforce them should be chosen, or how they should be regulated. I'm fascinated, I'm fascinated to know the answer. And I political think the question is actually asking That's that. what it does. That's why I am politically correct. I don't go around with armies. I don't jail people. 
I don't threaten them with the police. But you're supporting but, the jailing of Count Dankula. Exactly. Oh, support, um, I didn't say anything the of the sort. I said nothing about jailing or anybody. I did not. You supported it. No, I did not. I think you're reading things into my head. Well, when, when people, I did not. Well, if you ask me, then can I put I a, a particular question for you? When I keep trying to point out it's not about prison. When people lose their employment for not following the dictates of political correctness, do you believe that that's right or do you believe that's wrong? I mean, for instance, the, the case of Lillian Ladell, the, um, the, the registrar who wouldn't, uh, who wouldn't conduct same-sex marriages. Do you think she should have been fired? Or do you think she should, you, or, or did you spring her defence because you believe... Well, does it depend it? whether they're in a, a, a public role or a private role? I mean, absolutely, but, it, yeah. it, but it, it, it's in the public roles where, where, where these things are imposed. And this, this was a case of somebody on a matter of what she believed was conscience declining to perform a duty which she had not, which she had not contractually signed up to do and, and which was a change in her contract of employment. She said she wouldn't do it, and she was fired, and the courts upheld that. Do you think it was right that she, yeah. she was deprived of her employment? Yeah. Right, so now we know. You think people should be sacked. For, for not agreeing yeah. with you. So, so no, that's, 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 that's basically what that's basically what you Sorry, think. Peter, don't misrepresent me. Okay, well, in right the up. public service, in the public service, all citizens matter and all citizens are equal. Whatever I think, if I'm a lecturer, there are times when there are students in my class when I'm teaching, and I, for example, I detest the veil. I'm a Muslim woman who detests the veil. And there are women who sit in my class, and I'm incredibly uncomfortable with seeing them. But it is my job in the public sector to teach them. And if I didn't, I would be sacked, and I would be right to be sacked. That's what I believe. Wokeness is the new version of political correctness. I think it's a kind of deformed offspring of it. I think it's a more authoritarian version of it. And I think, I think the reason why I use that word authoritarian, and, and I, I use that maybe ill-advisedly, but I, what I mean is it has an authoritarian impulse behind it, which is that of control. We have uh, a government that doesn't believe in press freedom, certainly the opposition is opposed to press freedom. Uh, we have governments that, that will do nothing about hate speech laws. We have the 2003 Electronic Communications Act, which can see you in prison for writing something online that is quote-unquote grossly offensive. My question again is who decides these things? Who makes that decision? It's such a subjective idea. And that's why I think it's authoritarian, because ultimately it's going to be someone in power who makes that decision about where the lines are drawn. And I don't, I don't trust that. Incredible statements about the Sweet. left. This person on the left absolutely approves of some kind of responsibility that the giants need to take. They cannot sit there pretending not to be publishers and just conduits and let through. So, and it's nothing to do with the left and the right. It's to do with, with <coughs> truth, decency, good political, credible the, political Their version event. of decency. No, not their version of decency. There's fake. So fake news is fine, is it? No, it's not fine. It should be, it should be critiqued. It should, I mean, critiqued? This idea that debates and critique will solve everything? Did you ever try and debate with Abu Hamza in your life? I did, actually. No. It didn't work. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I just want to ask the panel about, I have a bit of cognitive dissonance. Maybe you can help me. Maybe we can find common ground, which was what Mark um, wanted to do at the beginning. He, he said, let's see if we can find some common ground. So no platforming at universities sounds sort of boring, but then the argument again is, well, hate speech may be occurring, so and incite violence. But so I have cognitive dissonance because I sort of get worried about no platforming, but then again I can also sort of see, agree with it as well. So 
What, what's the panel think about that platform? Well, I've been no platform. It was quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it, I, I'm surprised it took so long. Um, it, it, it made it, it was sort of body form, you know, as, as, as Portsmouth University now renamed the Portsmouth um, Secret Thought Police Academy. Um, I, I don't. Um, they made fools of themselves by doing it, but they also gave a warning to anybody who cares to listen. I, I speak of someone who. Um, as a revolutionary socialist student in the 1960s and 1970s, was all in favor of deplatforming people. I remember a disgraceful thing which I took part against Hans Eysenck at the University of York in, I think, 1972 on that basis. It is, I'm, I have mixed feelings about my Trotskyist past, but that is one thing about which I am unequivocally ashamed uh, because it was so stupid. But I understand the impulse that lies behind it. Uh, the thing is that at the time that I did it, what was very interesting was that the faculty, the, the, the lecturers at the university, most of my fellow students despised what I was doing and thought that I was wrong and mistaken. Now you can do it, and in general, the student union will back you, uh, the, the professors will back you, the university will back you, and you will have everything running in your favor. The change in those 45 years is enormous. And so it's, it is extremely dangerous, and it seems to me to presage a time when the products of these universities and thought police academies come into uh, the worlds of the, of the academy, of journalism, of the civil service, and the law, what will we be able to say? Will we be able to trust them with Yasmin's peculiar, undefined uh, social non, values, non-censorship, censorship, social communitarian censorship, it would probably be called. Cool. Uh, will we be able to trust them? Well, I think the answer is no. And if I, fortunately, I should be dead quite soon, so I don't need to worry <laughs> about, about this all, all that. For, no. I, this is another thing. And people, people do get unnecessarily upset by things. For many years, there was a page on Facebook which was actually called Peter Hitchens must die. Uh, I didn't think there was anything particularly worrying about that. It was apart from anything else, a statement of fact. I, I really don't, I didn't think that it meant anyone was going to steal up behind me on my way home and, 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 and stab me to death. It, it didn't, it was just one of those things that, that people say, and I think a lot of people are oversensitive about what gets said about them and about their movements, about what they think. And I. I, I like to think that I set an example here and not really minding. You certainly like about me. I have been insulted by experts, and the chances are you're not one of them. People now, they say they are offended, and it doesn't mean that. It's an, it's, 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 a, it's an expression people use to shut down what other people are saying. Yeah. I didn't like that joke. I am offended. Yeah. And the, the, the actual claim, which is utterly unprovable, that I am offended is an instrument of censorship in itself. I don't trust it, and I don't think people mean it when they say, when you put your hands up, I am offended, I don't believe you. I have a question <laughs> about um, what it says in the public discourse, and yeah, the, like, the repercussions of language in the public discourse. For example, um, I think one of the biggest um, examples of how public discourse can influence extremism is, for example, the uh, passive shooting, where this shooter himself published a statement using the same language as Trump did. And he's not one person. In the same year, so this year, 2019, there was also discovered that a group of people who worked for um, border enforcement or people who work in the border, they also had a group imitating or reproducing Trump's language with immigrants and then posting things like 
rape threats for congresswomen of color. So my question, especially for the guys who are very, um, well, who've been spending public, like free speech all, all day, um, don't you think that reflects what language can do to a society? Do, do you believe that, that uh, J.D. Salinger is responsible for the murder of John Lennon? Because the murderer cited Catcher in the Rye as his manifesto. But, you think I, that's don't the case? but I don't believe... Why would you mitigate the responsibility of the killers, is what I'm asking you. I don't believe that was in an era as we are now. Did maybe when that book happened, like was published, and then was basically banned in all the schools in the United States for being, I don't know, too sexual, to include it too many times the word moron. I, when that happened, it was a completely different time than now, when Trump says um, Mexicans are invading us, they're rapists, and they're bad hombres. That's horrible, that he, he shouldn't say that. He shouldn't say that. But, but, but if you go out and enact does. some violence off the back does. of that, that's your responsibility. It's his responsibility. Yeah. I think the question is, do you not think, this comes to the question of public discourse, what responsibility do people who have a microphone, like the President of the United States, have to moderate their language so people don't go out and shoot I think he should, I, I don't like his language at all. I think he should behave in a civil way. I, li I don't no, like... The question isn't whether you like it. Do you think well, he should I moderate his language? No, I, no he, he makes his own choice. He chooses what he says and I choose what I say. And if we don't like it, we vote him out, the people who can do it. That's how it works. It's not... It's not you think that's sufficient? Okay. Uh, I think this woman here, please. Hi. Sorry. I'm a, I'm a scientist, so um, I'm, I'm, I come from a world where people present me data and there are sort of prevailing dogmas, and my job is to question how the data I generate fits in with the data that I know to exist and whether or not it fits with the prevailing dogmas. That necessitates my ability to question what is the prevailing dogma. Every single step forward in the course of history and humanity has been based and premised on the fact that somebody is able to question what has happened before. And to question can be done in a polite form or an impolite form, but surely to question is the only way to progress. So what do you imagine in this world where we're not allowed to, where we are always considerate of other people's feelings and eventually what do we all just stop? How do we get change in a future where we're not allowed to question yeah. things? Uh, are you forward? shutting down questioning? Are you asking me? Yeah, no, that's, I no, think that's no, the question. Absolutely not, no. and I think it's a very good question you've asked mm -hmm. because I think asking questions <coughs> really serious questions, which is what I did in my book Against the Veil, or I do every single week in my columns, is absolutely part of a healthy democratic society. But I do not think that I have an obligation to therefore offend people as a moral obligation. I don't do that. And I also think it's about, it's about power. It's political correctness has never just been about language or being just polite. It's saying, hey, these universities are our universities too. Our writers need to be there. We will question white men and their presumption of the canon. All of that is questioning. And politically correct people do that. Can I ask Yasmin though, what would, how would you respond if someone, because I'm sure a lot of people were offended by your book on the veil, yeah. and how would you respond if then a future government decided that to offend people who wear the veil is criminalized and illegal? What would your response be to that? Because that would make you uh, the victim of political correctness. Well, I don't know. But I would be very upset, of course. Right. <laughs> but that doesn't mean, just because I'm very upset, I do have an obligation. When Boris Johnson made those comments, and I saw that there were attacks, absolutely, and you say there's no causality, there were attacks in the following week 
on women with veils. I felt a bit guilty. And it's human to feel a bit, oh God. But it is their responsibility. No, no, I don't feel that. I don't feel that. Look, look, you say there's no evidence. There's plenty of evidence that in Rwanda and Bosnia, and Rwanda in particular, words, for six months, words, including radio presenters, what they said turned into the massacres that followed. Do not tell me words don't lead somewhere. They well, do. Nobody, but these are straw men. Nobody's, nobody's telling you that, and nobody's saying you have an obligation. So the causality, no, 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 I was asking about nobody, the causality. And nobody, you just said a long ago, nobody uh, is saying you have an obligation to offend, which you just bizarrely mentioned either. Uh, what, and, and what you're referring to is incitement to violence, which no conceivable code of free speech would commit. So we are all against incitement to violence. It's a criminal offence. If someone goes up to a woman wearing a veil in the street and attacks her, that is also a criminal offence. It's common assault. It's already provided for in the laws of this country that if you do that, you can go to prison, and quite right too, and there's nothing wrong with that. So don't mix that up with the freedom to speak, because if you do, no. if you do, it will come back and it will bite you, and one day your book against the veil will be banned. You've been listening to The Know How, the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts. It was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper, and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For more information on this and our other episodes, please go to our website, www.thenowhowpodcast.com, or follow us on Twitter at Know How Podcast, or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast.